Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution. We believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and in today's episode, I was speaking with Omer Molad, co-founder and CEO of Verbo. Omer grew up in Tel Aviv, excelled in school and served as an officer in the military before working at a couple of startups. He eventually moved to Melbourne, but was rejected from hundreds of jobs he's applied to and not even landing a single interview. He was confident he could do the jobs, but nobody gave him a chance. So three university degrees and many years of experience later, he ended up seeing these same problems play out at a major bank, but also saw a different side of the table, consistently seeing candidates with unlikely backgrounds overperform once hired. This inspired him to come together with co-founder David and solve the problems they were constantly seeing in the market. Companies wasting time and resources hiring the wrong candidates and missing out on the top performers they were looking for. They've now built Vervo, an AI-powered skill testing platform that helps companies hire based on merit instead of background. He's got a super reputable voice in the marketplace and knows that we're going to learn a lot today, so let's jump straight in. Thanks so much for your time today. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no sweat. And yeah, thank you so much for joining. Excited to kind of dig in. So we ask the same questions at the beginning of every episode, right? Keen to understand more about you as a person and your background. So sort of, can you give us a sort of lightning fast tour of your career to date? What got you into this space? Yeah, so I moved to Melbourne, as you said, and at that time, the dot-com bubble burst, and I thought I'd get a job in tech, but turns out that Australia wasn't really a place where tech was happening or people were starting companies as a matter of habit, whereas in Israel, where I grew up, you, that was the norm. You'd start your own business, and on top of which I was um, a guy from the Middle East with a name no one could pronounce and no degree, and it was a bit of a kick in the teeth to realize that my credentials weren't really valued on paper. And so I sort of went the long way around and got myself into law school and ended up working in banking for, for a lot of years, with the exception of a, a two-year uh, stint at the Red Cross coordinating uh, international emergency response. But that were the two years where I sort of did good and the rest was evil, sort of evil financier. So I got to a point where two things happened. I, I led a big team and I started seeing this, this kind of issue of the stars in the team weren't the ones that you could pick out of a lineup in terms of where they went to school or where they worked. And on the flip side, I'd constantly interview people that looked really good on paper and I'd say, oh, can you apply your skills to this environment? And it was kind of computer says no. So that was kind of one thing. And then the other thing that was happening in parallel was kind of personally, I was really ready to, uh, the way I, I described it, I came to understand that the next job I have is not a job I want to apply for. It's a job I want to create. And, and I think that just, I just reached that sort of point in my life where I, I felt really strongly about that. And I was, it became such a strong urge that I was prepared to do anything and give up anything and take any risk to make that happen. And at the time I was talking to David, really we'd been friends for 20 years, never been in business together, never even considered doing anything like that. But we started talking about this hiring issue and David's kind of a really interesting guy, technical person, worked at a company called Juniper a lot of years and was um, a principal architect for the Department of Defense in Australia. But in between, he bought and ran a wholesale bakery, which I think was quite an extreme step to take for someone who really likes eating cupcakes. You don't really need to go and buy business. So very entrepreneurial. And you know, he was kind of seeing the same dynamic in tech where you got the sort of Stanford grads and then you've got the, the self-taught kind of hacker type uh, type people. And I think he was also ready to really build and do something so we started talking about this issue 
and we really got the, the kind of itch to create something. And then two other kind of things really hit us. We, I'm sure you'll ask me more about this later. We, um, we got involved in a film and the film industry is really interesting because how, how they do casting and via audition. And David read an article about a company called Automatic, which um, invented WordPress. And what they do is very unusual hiring. They bring people in for a week to work uh, with you and then they decide if you can stay. So that's kind of how they kind of audition style job trial. Um, and then if you get a job there, I don't know if it's still the case today, but at the time you then spend three months in customer service. And we thought, wow, that's a really like try before you buy. And so really the idea um, that David thought about was, well, could we use technology to recreate this kind of movie audition or job trial concept, but, you know, in 30 minutes at scale, et cetera. And then we were kind of like ambitious, naive and dumb enough to just do it. We just did it. And honestly, like if we'd stopped to think, there were probably like 18 different things that we could have said, hang on, this is crazy. And we never, we just wouldn't be here today. We'd probably still be in corporate jobs or in another startup. And so that's kind of how we got the unusual path that we took to get to the point where we've created this movement, not just a company, but the kind of way of thinking. That's awesome and makes so much sense. Well, actually, to be honest, the journey makes no sense at all, but the outcome makes loads of sense and kind of really excited to piece the journey apart in a minute. I think just one quick like side note, really great that you mentioned Automatic. So Matt Millenwerk, who's the CEO of and founder, I guess, of Automatic, blogs quite a lot about organizational design. And for people who don't know much about that company, I'd really encourage you to go check them out because not only do they have some kind of unorthodox but super effective hiring processes, as we've just discussed, but they also have like a, they were quite forward thinking from a remote perspective, like they've been a remote and distributed team for a very long time. And obviously that's fashionable now, but they've talked about the lessons they've learned on that journey quite openly for a very long time. And they've certainly inspired the way we think about things. So really cool that you mentioned them as like a sort of partial inspiration to where we've landed today. I guess before we move on to, to the business, you mentioned the film, we can't not talk about it, right? I was looking through your LinkedIn uh, sort of profile and seeing all the different things you've done. And again, I like the whole kind of evil versus um, good analogy with Red Cross versus being a, a horrible financier. But talk about this film, like there's just a random rogue executive producer credit in the middle of that. So how did that come about? So a friend of mine, actually more a friend of a friend, an American guy, we spent 10 days in Byron Bay in a house once, a whole bunch of us, and it was a crazy time. And I hadn't seen him for years other than a few kind of weddings we'd been to together. Um, he's a, a writer, screenwriter, and he writes kind of comedies and, and things like that. And he sort of decided he's going to make a movie and be produce the film, write the film, produce and direct. Big undertaking for the first time. A movie maker, and he wanted to raise money. Uh, you know, we're not talking a lot of money. It's like a few hundred thousand for the whole budget of the film, independent film. And he reached out to a lot of people to say, look, I'm making a movie. Here I am asking if you want to invest and and at the time, you know, I was in this place, like I described before, I was kind of looking for inspiration, looking to do different things, looking to get out of the straitjacket, the suit, the corporate world, the network that was very much the professional, the LinkedIn people. And, you know, here's an opportunity to get involved in something that's not yeah, in my sort of day to day. And I thought, wow, this is cool. And he said, um, and he sold it pretty well. And he said, look, you know, you can also come and sit on set. And I, I was the only one who took that up in the end. And I said, great, I'm going to fly to LA and learn how movies are made. 
And, you know, Cloris Leachman, who died sadly recently, was was in the film and, and a bunch of other people, James Walk and Mickey Sumner. And it was an interesting experience because you get to see, it's kind of like an MBA in movie making in a week. You get to see kind of how they make films and work, just be around people that are creative and um, which is a not really, wasn't really my scene. And I think you know, was it financially smart? No, incredibly terrible financial decision. Don't do it. But I got—I don't regret it because I got a lot out of it. And I think it played a role, at least for me, in sort of just getting me out of the sort of corporate treadmill, uh, getting me off that. It was just one thing, but it helped. And it exposed me to a lot of things and people that I hadn't been before. So it was a lot of fun and it was a great experience. I'm quite jealous of that, to be honest. I wish I had like an interesting equivalent story to learn from. But like, yeah, I mean, it's great to see the correlation in terms of how that's impacted the way you think about building teams and recruiting, taking that industry experience and kind of applying it more generally through, through Vovo. And I guess like that, that leads us fairly naturally onto the actual creation of the company and, and, and what's been happening since, right? So like, give me a sense of timings. Like, when did you actually go and set the business up with David? And where are you today in terms of scale? We started talking 2015 and 16 and I quit my job December 16. We raised some early pre-seed money January 17. And then we spent about 18 months in private beta and building and we launched mid-2018. So essentially the way to think about it is mid-18, we've been in market three years, better part of slightly longer, but essentially three years. And prior to that, we were kind of building, uh, took quite a while to build. It's a big platform and collecting data. So when we launched, we launched, um, we also prior to that hired a data science team and built the machine learning models and hired a sales team. There was a lot happening in that sort of middle part of 18. But prior to that, there was a lot of work. So this is not the kind of product that, you know, this isn't like a, like a small widget. It's a significant product and it requires a lot of data to do what we do. And so there was a period of time of building, working with some early customers privately and collecting data. So that's kind of roughly the timeline. So kind of three years in market, but four to five years of actually being in startup mode and sort of, you know, outside of the corporate world. Cool. Now, to be honest, quite a lot of symmetry with with our own at Pinpoint, right? Like we set the business up in early 17, took a product to market in 18 and have sort of been in the market about three years as well. So slightly different trajectories and journeys and the we can deliver a slightly more simple product to get out to market quickly and then evolve obviously considerably over time. But yeah, there's a lot of comparisons that can be drawn from your timeline. So like, where are you today? How big is the team? And like, how big is your customer base internationally and things like that? So we've been growing significantly and it's gone through several kind of inflection points where we launched, we guessed wrong. So we thought we'd get a lot of high velocity, small ticket size traction. So SMB, credit card, but then like Walmart, like we got into, it was the opposite. So we got, I think there was poor awareness at the time in terms of the category. So pre-employment testing was not well developed. And to the extent that it was, it was very much old school psych testing, not so much the job specific testing that we do for skills. And so People had no idea what we were talking about, and we honestly had no idea how to explain it. But the sophisticated big companies had a problem, and they were looking for a solution. And so we got enterprise traction we were completely unprepared for in terms of like they want to use the product, but then they have all these things like SLAs and procurement and security and privacy and legal. And we were like, hang on, what do you mean? Just give us a credit card. 
So that's kind of how it started. And so we got enterprise ready, suited up for the enterprise and went through the first cycle of kind of learned how to sell to enterprise pilots, expansions, did all that. And the sort of hook was the machine learning, the auto grading, which was at the time seemed revolutionary. But like when I look back compared to what we have now, it was kind of pretty simple. So now it's advanced so much in terms of how we how we do it. But that was kind of a real hook for us, the ability to test people and then grade, have them automatically graded based on their performance. So then we sort of started understanding a little bit about positioning and how how do we explain this thing? What's it called? Is it skill testing? Is it audition? How do we talk about it? How do we write about it? And we're still determined to do what we call product-led, so essentially to, to access people who don't want to talk to sales, want to get to value on their own, but we, we didn't do that well enough. So that wasn't working at the time, but we were getting a lot of traction and most of it was through selling. And we had various iterations of free trial, free tier, all this kind of stuff. And then we raised money and all this kind of, and then COVID, COVID happened. And during COVID, um, so we're a team of 30 now, during COVID, when COVID started, we were 20-something and we uh, low 20s, I think, and we, we basically made a decision. We waited a month. We shut down our offices and we said, okay, well, we're we going to cut hard. What, what are we going to do? And we decided we're not cutting any FTE, zero, and we're not doing pay. There were companies all around us cutting people and or salaries. We did none, neither of those. We cut all the marketing budget, closed our offices, but we kept the team together. And then COVID, what happened was... Um, so we had a global customer base and global team from day one. But what interesting in COVID was groceries and healthcare were going nuts, but travel and education, you know, the other way. So we had this kind of really interesting thing going on with the customer base. And we started getting a lot of traction in healthcare. And we've now, I mean, the numbers, I can tell you numbers in terms of what we do in healthcare is phenomenal now across mental health, clinical, aged care, ton of stuff all over the world. We started doing that. And then in the second half of last year, something amazing happened. We finally got the product-led growth working. So we figured out how to get people to the site to discover the product, to get to value on their own and to pay all on their own. It's like magic. I know there are a lot of SaaS products where that's kind of very normal, but if anyone who's tried to sell to recruitment uh, knows that that is not an easy thing to do, particularly when it's category creation, like a completely new way of doing things. And that brought a whole different level of traction in terms of volume of customers' logos. So companies that you would never know to sell to because you wouldn't even imagine that companies like that exist in the world, like companies that do fishing, tourism, and fashion chains in Paris and like SEO agencies in wherever, Eastern Europe, like these random companies all over the world just started buying and buying and buying. And that was um, kind of another. And then the final inflection point, well, not final, long way to go still, but the sort of another one was the the API. So we, we had a bunch of inbound inquiries about, can I embed your product in my workflow, not for traditional recruitment, but for what we call credentialing. So to test students and point them towards a course or to test job seekers on a job board or marketplace to help them stand out, those kind of things, but in in a work in someone else's workflow. And at that point we had there was nothing on our website about an API. There was no like it just came inbound. So we we eventually um, developed an open API and added docs and kind of started marketing this a little bit. And 
we've done a ton of stuff that's embedded, kind of OEM. So think of like Twilio inside Salesforce, that kind of. And so, so where we are today is we're an Australian company. 70% of our clients are outside of Australia. We've got uh, literally from like Linktree, you know, startups to, to Walmart and everything in between, Fortune 500 companies. We're doing everything from kind of like the Walmart cashiers at scale and postal delivery people all the way to like enterprise sellers and engineers and really sort of high skill knowledge worker type roles. And then all the way through to mental health counselors, registered nurses, clinical, all the clinical roles, um, personal carers in aged care and everything in between. And we're doing that all over the world, mostly in English speaking countries, but we do plenty in Spanish, German, you know, done stuff in Japan. So different, but we kind of focus our marketing efforts on, on English speaking countries. And so the final kind of piece of the puzzle when people ask like, where are you at? Like the question you've asked. So we've now reached a point which was impossible to shortcut or skip steps to this, to this point where we've A, tested enough candidates and B, been through enough cycles with customers where we now have post-hire data. Whereas until recently, what we had was pre-hire data, like faster, better, more efficient, less, you know, interview less people, all, all that kind of good stuff. But really what matters, there'll always be someone who'll come up with a faster widget. But what matters in hiring is can you hire people who perform better and stay longer, right? That's what's enduring. And we've now been able to prove that across a range of customers and a range of settings and roles. And that took us, you can't, you have to sort of be in market long enough. You have to be with customers long enough where the people are in the roles and you're getting the feedback loop and all that. And we've finally done that. So when people ask, well, where are you at? That's where we're at. And what that means is that to use a bit of startup kind of lingo, we're like crossing the chasm. We're essentially moving from the sort of early adopters to the early and late majority, the people who won't buy unless they have the proof, the people who aren't going to get seduced by the kind of the story and the method. The early adopters will, they'll love that. But the rest will sit there and say, show me the ROI that post-hire improves this and all that. And we've got that now. That really gives us a platform to, you know, in layman's terms, go nuts, but in proper, you know, language to really scale globally and, and, and take this to kind of to coming to a cinema near you rather than sort of selectively picking the, the early adopters. That's where we're at as a company. And, you know, it's an exciting, um, every stage is exciting, but, but to kind of know that this thing that you invented works and not just works anecdotally, qualitatively, because someone likes it, but the data is there. That's a good thing. It's a good feeling. We've done something. It's just, it's great to, sorry, like, I'm just sat here enjoying listening to you run through that story, to be honest. I think that, again, there's a lot of symmetry in, in where you're at and where we're at and the journey we've respectively gone on and, and the stage we're at today and things like that. And I think the post-hire piece is super important. We've gone on that journey ourselves, right? We really early days prioritized integrations in a broader ecosystem, not just because customers want it, but because it helps us validate the role that we play in that market. And we can see the difference that we've made once someone's actually hit the company and joined and looking at retention, looking at post-high performance management and things like that to make sure that we're actually able to demonstrate a difference and like really exciting that you're in that position and that you're now kind of ready to push the button and as you said, kind of go from indie movie theaters through to 
big box chains everywhere, right? I think what I want to do is kind of dig into some of the specifics and offer some kind of more general sentiment on the assessment space and the pros and cons of that, if there are cons and where you see that going in the future and things like that. I guess before we do that, I just want to run through a few quick fire things just so we can kind of test where you're at from a recruitment perspective versus others we speak to, right? So when people come in and buy Vervo, like what, what are the KPIs that they're looking for you to impact and, and, and what difference are you actually making there? So usually there are two things that people have awareness around, whether they know how to articulate that clearly or not. And then we call them efficiency and confidence. Efficiency is really, I've got to filter a lot of candidates or I'm wasting a lot of time with a process that's clunky. It's got multiple stages. I'm, I'm screening resumes. I'm doing phone screening, all that kind of stuff, right? So too much time is wasted. It's not allocated well. And confidence is around I want to make a right decision versus, you know, Bob versus Jane. And if I hire Bob when I should have hired Jane, well, that's going to cost me dollars and productivity and all those kind of things. Now, both those things are always present, but usually there's a trade-off. So if I'm Walmart and I'm hiring 10,000 people a month or whatever kind of stupid number, you know, in, in the, the numbers are insane, it's an efficiency. It's largely, they care about the people they're hiring. but it's an efficiency play much more so. You know, if I'm Tesla and I'm hiring rocket scientists, uh, sorry, I'm um, SpaceX and I'm hiring rocket scientists, everything Elon Musk converges for me. Well, I really, it's not about saving time. It's about I've got to get the right rocket scientist, otherwise big trouble with the rocket kind of thing. Or to use a more relatable example, with our, one of our customers, Trinet, you know, hiring salespeople and I want salespeople that ramp one month quicker. And, and so that translates to X dollars of revenue and, and kind of, so that's the KPI. What we try and do is we ask them to tell us in really simple terms, what are they trying to solve for? They don't, they, sometimes they don't understand the why behind it. They might say we've got high turnover, but they don't know why. Or they describe the process and they say, well, we're spending time on all these things. We've got a sense we can potentially do it better. But it usually falls into one of those two buckets and usually the higher skill, the raw, so that sort of as you gravitate towards that high skill, it's more confidence. And as you gravitate towards the sort of semi-skill high volume, it's more efficiency. They're the buckets. That's how we think about things. Makes a lot of sense. And again, like the metaphorical analogy is super helpful. I think, again, before we dig into that, just one final question, just really keen to understand your own recruitment process. So obviously, like you've got a bit of a different perspective on the market and you're taking a product to market to solve those sort of broader problems. If I'm applying for a job at your business, like what, what does that recruitment journey look like from start to finish right now? Yeah, so there's a few things. First of all, we're a startup. We're globally distributed. We've got a good sense now of the kind of people that do well in our company, people who are startup people, people who buy into our mission, all, all that. There's a bunch of things that we've worked out. So we want to be really clear on the kind of people that we want to attract and repel uh, or allow to self-select out. But also we're a startup and we're competing against global, you know, the people that we talk to usually they have options. So we want to be an attractive place to work. So that's the first thing. So you call that employer branding, whatever, but we're in that game like everybody else. We're competing. Second thing is we eat our own dog food. Every single person who joins our company, regardless of role, geography, seniority, whatever, does it a verbal assessment, everyone. There's a couple things behind that. First of all, we believe in it, so it gives us a, a strong signal. But second, 
if you're going to be making or selling this product, you should test out, check out the merchandise. And we tell them that. And then you can say, I was hired, can sort of talk the walk, right? So, or walk the talk or whatever the saying is, but you know what I mean? You basically have been through the process. Now, they're the two things. Beyond that, it really depends. So we will talk some roles. We will set up the assessment at the top of the funnel and, and use that as the first. We'll get some roles. We get hun- literally hundreds um, of applicants. Other roles like, you know, VP of sales, you're probably going to court people and then the assessment sits at a later stage and it's, it's a more white glove kind of approach. We're not sort of pig-headed about that. It really depends on market conditions, the role, the circumstances, but it is a cornerstone of the process and our team kind of demands it and they'll be like, oh, who are the top three people? Send me the link to the candidate card so I can see the assessment responses. It's kind of like a ritual in the company. So that's kind of what you can expect. And then the other thing we're really big on is meeting the team. And again, that's a two-way street. It helps us, but also we want candidates to like, if you're going to report to me, you should talk to other people that report to me because maybe I'm a psycho and you want to know what to expect in terms of, Otherwise, don't join. And then, you know, I want people to know, we want them to see the truth. And we're not trying to hide it. Startups are not for everyone. In fact, they're not for most people. And so we really want to give people a sense. On two occasions, we've done the automatic job trial. We've actually brought someone in for a week and they've done real work and we paid them full salary for that week as a contractor. One of them ended up joining and is still with us. And the other one took an offer from another company so that she was considering multiple offers and end up going with someone else, but it was still very val- a valuable experience. So sometimes we do that, which is a sort of slower version of the job job, but that's typically how we think about hiring. Cool. And incredibly useful context for some of the questions we're going to dig into now, right? And so moving to that, right? I think like if we step back a second, I think we've spoken before about the role of assessments in the marketplace and, and maybe more importantly, the danger of like the more kind of traditional standard practice when it comes to hiring, right? Screening on background, looking at resumes as the main source of information, etc. I wonder if we can step back a second, just get your view on like the danger of the way people are doing things right now, right? What, what are people missing by screening on resumes and screening out rather than in? Yeah, I mean, resumes have been around since like Leonardo da Vinci and it made a lot of sense when you were a blacksmith and that was his whole career. And to be good at, a, as, at being a blacksmith, you had to do like 10 years or 10,000 hours. Then it made a lot of sense to say, I've been a blacksmith for seven years and I've done my apprenticeship under this other blacksmith. That makes a lot of sense. When you're working in 2021 and you're you know, part of the creator economy and you've got, you've got like side hustles and you, you know, you've worked at this company remotely and then you've had your own business, like None of that, like, it just doesn't make sense to think about things in terms of this chronological way to kind of summarize our lives. It's, it's meaningless. And that's why people who have an old school way of thinking talk about this, like, oh, you've got a gap on your resume. You didn't work. Well, maybe, maybe I was freelancing. Maybe I was meditating. Maybe I was doing something else that made me a better contributor later. So, so I'm going to reject this whole, that's just an outdated concept. On top of that, there's plenty of evidence to show that you know, if you hire for pedigree, you're hiring for privilege, right? So people who come from a privileged background, they go to private schools, they have a better chance of getting into college or university. They then have a better chance of getting into blue chip. And it just, this cycle kind of continues. 
And so what you find is that like, and particularly in, you know, in Silicon Valley, go to Stanford, you go to Facebook, this kind of, and so, and what we talk about is hire based on merit, not background. That's our mission. When you're hiring on background, not only are you unlikely to get the best person, but you are likely to get the most privileged person. Now, if you're, you know, your business is a limousine service for rich people, maybe that's okay. But like I, I would have thought in most businesses, you're not aiming for the most privileged person. You're aiming for the person who can do the job. What's happening is, uh, and this has been happening for a while, this trend is that hiring sucks for recruiters, but most recruiters don't end up with the person they hire. That's the hiring manager. That's somebody else. Uh, recruiters are doing these, these kind of laborious tasks and they're sick of it because it's, it's, it's exhausting. Phone screening all day and reading resumes. And so they're screaming for, for efficiency gains, for, for, for time saving. So all these vendors have come and basically said, oh, you know what? You know you're screening resumes all day? We'll create this widget that screens resumes faster, right? So that's a resume passing. Or we'll do this automated phone screen. Now, it's not better. It's taking something that's flawed and making it more efficient. And so what that does is it say, and that's why I said before, there will always be a faster widget. There will always be a thing that is faster, but it's not getting you a better outcome. And so you're doing yourself a disservice because you're missing out on people who aren't going to look good on paper because they're not privileged. They didn't follow a traditional path. They didn't work at Google or at Goldman Sachs or wherever. But you have no idea how they think. You have no idea how creative they are, how hardworking they are, and so many other things that are completely relevant to how they're going to contribute at your company. So we've got ATSs and screening tools that are kind of using keywords and matching, and and the keywords that they're matching to are words on a resume that someone decided applies to them, and it's not verified, and it doesn't necessarily correlate to anything in terms of job performance. That's kind of a dangerous, um, it's kind of being weaponized because these tech tools are making it faster and faster. And so where we come from is a a place that's fundamentally different. We're not interested in kind of making the wheel spin faster. We're saying, well, coming back to the Matt Mullenweg thing, hiring is information asymmetry. That's what it is. There is no right answer with 100% certainty until you've worked with someone for a year. And even then they might change. They might get stale. They might, just because they performed last year doesn't mean they'll perform. And they might perform well in job A, but not in job B. So how do you reduce information asymmetry as much as possible with reasonable expense and time spent? That's what hiring is. And we look at it and say, well, if you want to know if someone can world medal, watch them world medal. Well, what is their resume? Why do I care if they went to Harvard? But why do I care if they're an introvert? I mean, I might care for some situations, but what I care more about is like, if I want to know if they're a good logo designer, maybe I should ask them to design a logo. That seems to me more reasonable than figuring out if they're some other sort of random trait or whether they worked somewhere else or or whatever. And so that's kind of, we come at it from a place of first principles, see people do the job before they get the job. And if you're eliminating someone, if you're disqualifying someone from the process without giving them an opportunity to show you what they can do, you're running a risk that you're eliminating someone who could be great, but hasn't presented their historical, their chronological work experience in a way that has answered your question, or they don't look similar enough to you. 
And so you've sort of got a bias against it, not because you're mean or a bad person, because that's how our brains work. We, we gravitate to the familiar. That's kind of the dynamic that we're trying to change in the market and get people to think about, you know, forget the noise, see people do the job before they get the job. Well, there's so much to unpick there, right? And I think that that whole analogy plays out in our own team, right? We look at our engineering team, for example, and our engineering leader. We have people with comp sci degrees that have gone the more conventional route. We also have engineering leadership that used to be professional poker players or chefs or worked in a evil financier like you did, right? That correlation doesn't exist anymore. And I think screening out some of the negative stuff that you talked about and working out how to screen in the good important things makes so much sense. I guess it's just historically, perhaps before you guys, that was much more difficult to do. Um, I think one thing I did want to ask, right? And so we talked about the idea of, you know, like a resume parser using keywords, trying to screen people out that don't say the right things and frame them in the right way. How much of that do you attribute to systems design? And how much of it do you attribute to like poor rollout implementation configuration and and kind of the end user right and and I guess the reason I asked the question is is there a risk that the same thing happens with an assessment that somebody configures an assessment with the wrong inputs or the wrong questions or that frames the candidate in the wrong light and they're using a different tool to still achieve the same negative outcome like how do you guys combat that in the design of your technology the short answer is yes there is a risk and we've seen people use our platform in a way that is suboptimal. And in fact, that's one of the challenges that it's the trade-off of our platform's very flexible. And a lot of clients love that because you can design whatever workflow. You can have short assessments, long assessments, tough, easy, whatever. But when you offer flexibility, you're potentially allowing people to weaponize or to use it poorly. And I mean, we had someone, we had someone create an assessment with 52 questions we had someone create an assessment with 12 video questions in a row all timed. I mean, could you, I mean, what a nightmare. I mean, how would you, I mean, you know, you do two and then you're exhausted. Who wants to go like video after video? And I'm not even talking about the recruiter on the other end having to watch all that, but just the petrified candidate with the clock. You know, I don't know if you've ever done anything on it. I presented on stage in pitch competitions with a three minute shot clock and like, it's terrifying. So now imagine you're applying for a job and this countdown, this thing now, there is a place in it, sure, there is definitely merit sometimes in doing things with a time limit. I'm not saying it's bad per se, but don't torture the candidate. So we've had to spend a lot of time thinking about what are the sort of guardrails that we want to place, but you know, you're foregoing the flexibility. And, we, and we've had customers we've said no to that have come to us and said, well, I want to, we just want people who look good. And we said, well, honestly, like if that's what you want, use Zoom or use a video. Like we're not really, that's not really, we're not up for that. That's not what we're about. The technology is a tool. I don't care how sophisticated it is. The technology is a tool. The human being is responsible. It's like a car. Don't blame the car. The car didn't crash. The drunk driver caused the crash who decided to get into the car. So the way that we think about it and our whole philosophy is we are putting you in the driver's seat and we're giving you a great car, but you're the driver. And that doesn't just apply to the question you're asking, Tom. It also applies to what does good look like in hiring. So we don't tell you the right answer. We don't know what the right answer is. You know what makes a good employee in your company. We figure out how to test for it. Now, we'll help you unpack that. So you might not know how to describe exactly the skills will help you get there. But you know what good performance looks like or bad performance looks like in your company, whether you're a a shop or you're a Fortune 500, you know, 
And so we're not here to tell you the answer. We're here to tell you, to suggest to you how to test for that and how to get identified people who are great, great at that. And that's really reflective of our whole approach, which is we give you a great car, you're still the driver. I really like that analogy. I think changing tack to second. So let's look at this framed in the context of the candidate experience, right? We talk a lot on the podcast about candidate experience and we talk a lot about the dynamic and the power balance between organization and the talent they're trying to attract. And in lots of cases, people still think that the organization wields all the cards. In lots of cases, it's the complete reverse. How does this play in? So like, I understand that you can incorporate an assessment at various stages of the funnel, right? Right at the top in some instances, toward the end of the process, when you know you use the analogy of your sort of frontline staff versus your VP sales and, and the assessment playing a very different role there. But in the context of someone like a Walmart, for example, you use them as an example, their cash is, I assume that's toward the top of the funnel, right? Like how does that play out in terms of conversion, in terms of applicant volume, in terms of candidate survey feedback, like, do candidates like a 20-minute assessment versus a two-minute application form? Like what, how do you see that play out? Okay, let's have an honest conversation about this for a minute. Real talk. When I say to you, Tom, would you like to be assessed? How does that make you feel? Well, I'm a bit of a broken human being and probably not the best example, but like, I, I quite like the idea of being assessed, actually. But I imagine that most would say hell to the no, right? <laughs> Right. Most people don't like, when you think about high school exams, that's not usually something you look back on fondly. You think, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be judged. So let's be uh-huh. honest about that because that is human nature. No one wants to be judged. No one wants to be assessed. No one wants to do something that's called a test or an exam or an assessment. And assessment sounds very clinical and so it should because it is. And assessments were, you know, psych assessments really came from clinical use 150 years ago and then the military adopted and then eventually personnel selection commercial sector got their got its hands on assessments and started selling them so let's start with that however if i said to you tom i'm going to give you an opportunity to put your best foot forward and to be judged on what you can do and if you do well you get a shot and if you don't we say thanks but no thanks is that fair now, most people would say yes to that. Most people are reasonable. What they want, they don't want to guarantee. Some do. Some people are entitled. Probably don't want to hire those people. But most people, all they want is a fair go. They want a chance. They want a fair and even opportunity, a level playing field. They don't want to be eliminated before you've given them a chance. And that applies to everything, but most certainly to getting a job. They know they're not the only applicant. They know the odds are against them. They're one of 50 or 100 and one or two will get hired. People understand that. That's why they apply for many jobs. So that is a lesson that we learned early on. And the whole, the foundation for our candidate experience is we are giving you an opportunity to showcase your talent and put your best foot forward. We don't even use the word assessment. Nobody likes that. But when a candidate applies, let's take a top of funnel example. We say, thanks for applying. The next step of the process is for you to show us, to showcase your skills. And all of this stuff can be customized and whatever. But it's sort of high level. This is how it would work. We'd like you to spend 25 minutes doing this. You can do it anytime. You can do it in your pajamas. You can do it from home. You can start and then stop and come back usually. And you will be judged based on this. Now, in more senior roles where it's further down the funnel, that conversation will happen with human and whatever. But most of the stuff happens at the top of the funnel. And the first exposure that a candidate has to the system is 
digital that, that you know that, that sort of it happens naturally automatically through the process we had to get that right otherwise we would see drop off rates and that's not good and our clients don't get value so the vast vast majority of people we track completion rates from invitation to who starts and then we track from starting the assessment to finishing starting to finishing is like high 90s and invitation to starting is I think it's 70s or 80s. It depends on the role, and but on average. So very high. Now, in video interviewing, it's like 30 to 50% can be lower because what I said before, there's nothing wrong with video, but there's a lot wrong with 12 video questions in a row. So it can get monotonous. So it depends on the role. It depends on the company and how much people want. People will go through a lot of torture to work at Google. They might go through less torture to work at you know, the sort of factory that hasn't got a good employer brand and doesn't treat its people well. And nothing against factories, I'm just picking on someone for an example. So so I think the company has to good, do a good job marketing itself. We have to do a good job positioning this with a candidate as an opportunity, not root canal. Nobody wants to do root canal. If it's an opportunity to succeed, most people will do it. I like how you use Google as an example there, right? Like if you look at their recruitment process, they're essentially designed to screen out false positives, right? Like they'd rather pay the price of missing out on great people than they would hire someone who isn't great because the cost of doing business for them and the cost of bringing that person into the organization is so torturously bad that they're happy to screen poor people out, uh, good people out, sorry. But they can do that, as you said, because it's Google and their employer brand is so strong and the applicant volume and the quality of that volume is so strong. Whereas your factory example does not have that luxury. And I guess that plays into, does it play into your client base? Like, are you seeing organizations that deploy Vervo predominantly be organizations that already have an established and reputable employer brand and are seeing quality candidates already? Or is it both sides of that ecosystem? You know what? It's not only company independent, it's market dependent. So absolutely companies that don't have a strong brand have to work harder. They have to sometimes call candidates and say and market to them and then get by and then invite them to an assessment. But even the same company 12 months ago was kind of batting people away. They had they were drowning in applicants. Now they're begging because the market's flipped on its head and there are more job vacancies than humans it seems, on the planet. And so everyone's fighting and everyone's complaining now, the recruiters, that, oh, I can't get candidates to do anything. Now, of course, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? So you sort of have to, in any market, have a good brand. In any market, treat people with respect. And in any market, expect and demand a high standard. Just because it's a tough market to get candidates doesn't mean you hire anybody with a pulse, that is going to come back to bite you. So we tell clients, yes, okay, we understand. We live in the world, in the same world as, as you do. We understand that there's a shortage, that it's a candidate's market. But if you just go and pay 50% more, and sometimes you do have to pay more, that's fine. But if you just pay more and have no standards in terms of how you hire people, well, where are you going to be in 6, 12, 18 months? You're going to be back on the bad hire treadmill and you, you, all those people will leave and you're going to have to hire new ones at 50% higher again. And so what we're talking to clients about now is, listen, do you have to be sort of at the top of your game in terms of marketing? Yes. But should you drop your standards? No, because that, that is there's seasonality around that. That is a market a dynamic. That is not a good way to go about bringing people into your organization. But I understand, I have empathy like, 
they're scared. They're stressed recruiters. They, they, they're trying to find people and, and there aren't people. So they're kind of, I understand where it comes from, but really your process shouldn't vary. It shouldn't like flip flop, you know, 180 degrees depending on like where, which way the wind blows with market conditions. It should be a robust process that works in any market. Yeah, I think, look, the case you're making here is quite hard to argue, right? Argue with rather, right? Like it's pretty bloody compelling. And I get, I guess, throughout why this is extremely valuable for people on the side of the recruitment end, right? Like why I want this to help me find the right talent. I guess the question was just levied given, as you said, some concern and some fear and some anxiety from recruiters about introducing anything, even if it's obviously helpful to them, that might detriment their ability to attract top tier people right now. You know, I tell you, from uh, Tom, from personal experience, um, we just hired a VP of sales and people phenomenally senior, sought after, have options, that, you know, and guess what? We don't hire anyone who doesn't do an assessment. And we had, you know, very senior, very highly paid people. And we said, and we, we did the courting, obviously, but, and then we got to a certain stage and we said, all right, this is the next stage. I designed an assessment. Now, it's a very senior role. So it wasn't like, can you sell? It's beyond that. And we gave back a lot. We gave a lot of information. So we actually put a deck together with a lot of the company's information, value proposition, market, sales metrics. And we said, here's a lot of value we're giving you so you can understand the business. Now we want your thoughts. We, you know, we want to ask you a bunch of questions on how would you approach this? How would you do that? It was a great way for them to see the product, but it was, gave us a lot of insight. And I tell you, if any one of them had said, oh, this is beneath me, I'm not doing this, it's over. We're not hiring. It doesn't matter if they've got... 50 job offers from Google, from, I don't care. It's irrelevant. You know, if you're not prepared to have a go, if it's beneath you, then obviously I'm going to have that, take that position. But I think if you believed that testing skills in a way that is specific to the role was going to get you better people, if you believe that in 2020, why do you not believe that in 2021? What's changed? Is it harder to attract candidates? Yes, but has your whole philosophy changed around the signal you're using to make a decision? Um, surely not. And so that's the argument we're making now. Do you need to do it in a more nuanced way? Do you need to sort of spend more time at the top of the funnel courting? Yes. Great. So deploy assessments in a nuanced way. It's not a blunt instrument, but don't drop your standards. That's the argument we make. And it's a bloody good one. I think we've learned a heck of a lot about assessments and where they sit in the ecosystem and why they're valuable and why you guys have a compelling offering in that space. I guess just as we head towards a wrap up, I just want to put like a DNI lens on this, right? So you said something super interesting before, which was people just want to be given a chance, right? They want to be given a fair shot. And from the candidate's perspective, as far as you're concerned, it's a good positive thing because they see Vervo or an equivalent assessment solution as their opportunity to actually have a fair chance, right? And you said that there's an audience of people for whom this is maybe a disadvantage because their CV may conventionally have got them shortlisted or at the top of that part. How have you seen your clients and yourself and the, the broader end, like how have you seen the work you do impact DNI for organizations? The most common anecdotal feedback we get from customers is, I just hired someone I normally would have screened out. And when we hear that, we sleep well at night because we know that someone would, 100% have been overlooked uh, in the normal resume screening process, um, but they got a shot. And so that's gratifying. That is a good feeling. And we've got so many examples, but I'll, I'll choose one, which is, um, was very touching for us recently. So 
So we have a, a client in Australia called Australian Post. They're the, I suppose they're equivalent to the Royal Mail or US Postal Service. Um, they are the postal service. They deliver the mail. We do a lot of work with them. We came across an older gentleman um, on LinkedIn. His post went viral. He worked for, I think it was Barminko, but it, it was one of the mining services companies for something like 30 plus years. Lost his job. I apologize if it wasn't Barminko and it was someone else, but it was that kind of company. And was unemployed for two years and he shared his story like how many applied for 200 roles, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, didn't have the, the sort of experience, been out of the workforce, older guy, you know, it's kind of, there's a lot of reasons to knock this guy back. Cards are stacked against him a bit, right? Right. Got a job as a van driver with Australia Post. And what he said was, I'd never worked as a van driver. So I got hired into a role that, that I'd never done, that I didn't have experience for, but the test looked at certain skills and I had those skills and I was able to apply them. And he, he kind of said something like, thank God they didn't like rule me out on my resume, something like that. And we saw that and we saw it was Australia Post and we were like, please, 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 let's verify that he did a verbal assessment because what a shame not. And he did. And we were so happy about that. And we, we wrote about it and he responded, all this kind of stuff. And I can tell you that was one of the best days in the history of our company because that is why we talk, you asked before about how we hire. We hire people who love that, that stuff. We hire people who had that experience themselves. And, yes, we love winning clients and closing deals and, and all that. But what we love more is helping, you know, Darren, this guy, Darren Jeffries is his name. We've got, I think there's a case study on our website. There's, you, can, you can look up this guy, Darren Jeffries. We love it when Darren Jeffries and millions other like him get a job that they otherwise wouldn't get if the normal system was used and worked against them. And all we gave him was a shot. We removed the barrier. We helped the Australia Post get out of its own way and see this guy for what he can contribute. Turns out that's all that was required. We didn't need to like overcook it. We didn't need to go sourcing in unexpected places. We just needed to like remove the noise and let people show what they can do. And this guy, you know, the magic happens. So now imagine if we help this older guy get a job as a van driver, how many other people there are from underrepresented groups, people who are overlooked. Um, today, um, I hosted a webinar with someone who's autistic and she talked about her experience and how people um, on the spectrum are misunderstood and neurodivergent and it's endless. Diversity is not just gender or ethnicity or race. It comes in many forms. And as human beings, we gravitate to the familiar because it's safe. And so what we're trying to do, if I can leave you this, with, with this one thing that kind of sums up what we do, we're delaying the impression that you form from the point of application to after you've seen the work. That's all we're doing. Instead of seeing the application and going, oh, Tom, white guy, this age, this school, you don't get any of that. You just see Tom do work. And then Tom did great work and you go, wow, geez, Tom, Tom can really design. Or Tom, the way Tom thinks about selling is fantastic. Or the way Tom approaches customers is fantastic. And then you go, oh, now let's look at Tom's LinkedIn profile. But by then, your brain is already worshipping at the altar of Tom because, because you've already seen the great work. 
Now, that doesn't mean you're going to ignore the other stuff, but they become secondary. The primary reference point is Tom does great work in a way that's relevant to my company and my job, and that's what I care about. If people are absolutely determined to go out of their way to be biased, we're not going to be able to stop them. They need therapy. Like that's a whole different thing. That's not the game we're in. What we are trying to do is help the majority of people who are trying to do the right thing get out of their own way and see people do the work and use that as the signal. If people really want to hire in a way that's unethical and fundamentally wrong, well, their company needs to deal with that. That's a bigger issue than you know, hiring is not just going to alone fix that. So that's how we think about it. Well, that's maybe the most articulate two minutes I've ever heard anybody say anything in my life. So thank you for that. And secondly, that was like an extremely wholesome way to round out the podcast. So, so thank you. I guess the final question is, and normally I do this outro, but clearly I think you'd be better delivering it yourself. It's like, where, where do people go next, right? So you've presented a bloody great case for why somebody should be doing this differently, why they should be thinking about assessments, why you are the right person to lead that charge for them. If somebody wants to learn more or they want to start on this journey, where do they go? So the sort of central hub for everything is vervo.com, V-R-V-O-E.com. And there are a number of ways that are getting in touch with us. One is to try the product yourself, which, which we talked about earlier. Another is to get in touch with the team. But I think some people are not necessarily ready to get into a using the product or talking to sales or buying. So, I mean, we're hosting webinars every week. We've got a blog with hundreds and hundreds of articles. There's a lot of material, articles, videos, case studies that sort of talk about what we're doing, the way we're doing it, how we think about hiring, our position on things like psychometric assessments, our position on things like facial recognition, all these kind of things. And I think if you want to get to know us, then get involved, come to a webinar, read some articles. But obviously, if people want to talk, then we're always ready. You know, We've got people all over the world and we're ready to have those conversations. But I think, as we've said, Tom, this is a new way of thinking. We go at whatever pace people are ready. We're not trying to push people into, you know, we're not trying to pull the rug from underneath anyone and, you know, change, flip people's lives around. I think people need to go at whatever pace makes sense. And often that's taking a first step and then going from there. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's a big change to throw out resumes, to fundamentally change the way you think about hiring, which is what this is. But vervo.com, V-R-V-O-E.com is, is usually the starting point for that. And obviously I'm pretty visible on, you know, pretty easy to reach on LinkedIn and Twitter and all the usual places. And my name, um, while it didn't help me get an interview when I moved to Melbourne, I think it's hard to forget. So if you look me up, you probably won't find many other people with that name. So I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah, same. Tom Hackwell is a great second name because I can get hackwell.com, right? And nobody can beat me to that to that punch. Well, look, Omar, that was awesome. Thank you for being such a fantastic guest. Thanks for teaching us all there is to know about the world of assessments. And I, I sincerely hope people listening do go check out Vervo. We certainly will be. That leaves us to just say thank you. I think for more great tales from the trenches and best practice people guidance, please stay tuned to the talent revolution. We've got loads more great guests just like this coming every Tuesday. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.